Genesis chapter 17. And when Abram was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man-child amongst you shall be circumcised. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations. He that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her, and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell upon his face, and laughed, and said in his heart, Shall a man-child be born unto him that is an hundred years old? And shall Sarah, that is ninety years old, bear? And Abraham said unto God, O that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. And as for Ishmael... I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarai shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. And he left off talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. And Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all that were born in his house, and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day, as God had said unto him. 
And Abraham was 90 years old and nine when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And the selfsame day was Abraham circumcised and Ishmael, his son, and all the men of his house born in the house and bought with money of the stranger were circumcised with him. Thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children say, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that we might see Christ, that he indeed is our circumcision. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, You'll notice how this opens up. What I want to share with you is sometimes it's hard to tell how much time lapses between one verse and another verse and how much time is between one chapter and another chapter. So I want you to appreciate that from the last verse in Genesis chapter 16 to the first verse in Genesis chapter 17 is about 14 years. So sometimes we think to ourselves, uh, you know, we don't feel like we've heard from the Lord in a while, yet here it is 14 years for Abram to not have heard a word from the Lord. So we can appreciate how difficult his walk might have been um, after the Lord called him out of Ur the Chaldees. That we, we read this narrative and we think that God is talking with him and speaking and working with him all the time, but that was not the case. Um, so let's keep that in mind that it's been 14 years since the Lord has spoken with him. Now, What I want us to appreciate this morning when I go over this section is I'm going to talk about the big picture here. We're going to have to take a step back from Scripture so that we can appreciate the big picture about circumcision. So later, Lord willing, I'll go through it uh, in greater detail, but today we're going to talk about circumcision because it is a... um, it It is a big deal amongst certain people. They mess the whole thing up. Now, as you're looking at this section, I want us to appreciate that it's really got four divisions in it. The first clue comes to us when you read verse 3 and verse 17. In verse 3, it says that Abram fell on his face, and then you get over to verse um, 17, and it says that Abraham fell upon his face. So if you were a copy editor and you were reading the scripture, you would go, you know, listen to me, he fell on his face. He's already on his face. How can he fall on his face again? That's what copy editors do. You know, you you say that the character went into the room and then you say it again. Well, he had to have left the room to come back into it. Abraham would have had to gotten up from his face before he fell on it again. So I'm simply sharing with you that there's a couple of different sections that this can be broken up to. It can be broken up into four sections. And that helps us understand in context uh, more about what's... um, we should appreciate with respect to circumcision. In verses 1 through 8, we see that the Lord appeared unto Abraham, and then he said several things. You jump down to verse 9, and it says, and God said. So 9 to 14 would be another section. And then you get to verse 15, and it says, and God said. So 15 to 22 is another section, or 15 to 21. And then in verse 22 through 27, it begins with, and he left off talking with him. So that would be another section also. So four different sections in here. And when you understand that it's to be broken up, I think it'll help you to appreciate what the Lord is saying here. So with the understanding that there are divisions here in the text, we might better sort out what is in view respecting circumcision. The big question is, is circumcision necessary to be saved? Now, a similar question to that was set forth at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, which our deacon read earlier. The question there is asked, is circumcision after the manner of Moses necessary for salvation? 
But I think that is what they meant with respect to what is set forth here in Genesis 17. They refer to this as the manner of Moses. And that has to do with the foreskin of the male being cut off on the eighth day. Now, we read in Acts chapter 15 that the apostles came together to discuss this question. In verse um, 2 of Acts 15, it says that there had been up in Antioch when people came up from Jerusalem that there was no small dissension and disputation with them about that subject. Then you get over to verse 7, now they're down in Jerusalem and the apostles and elders are all there and it says something similar, that there had been much disputing over this subject. So this is a big deal amongst the Jewish um, people and it certainly has spilled over into the Gentiles as well in terms of what they think applies to the Jews. So what does it mean? Well, what does circumcision in the Bible mean? Um, reference to circumcision has five different meanings in the Bible. It can mean, as is stated here in 17, in Genesis 17, the cutting off or the circumcision of the male foreskin. It does not include the women. Women are not to be circumcised, although some of the Muslim nations put that forth and they engage in that. And if they do it in this country, they can be charged for, with um, child mutilation. So it means, um, amongst other things, it means the, the uh, cutting off of the male foreskin. It also means the circumcision of the heart, removing our hearts of stone and replacing them with a heart of flesh. It also means the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh. It also makes reference to the circumcision of Christ when he died on the cross. It can also stand for two different groups of people. A group of people whose males were outwardly circumcised, according to what it says here in Genesis 17, or it can refer to a group of people who were inwardly circumcised by God, who circumcised their hearts, setting them apart unto himself. So it can have five different meanings about what was done to a person and ultimately defining them into two different groups of people. And the Bible uses all five of those, so you've got to appreciate the context um, so you can understand what the Lord is speaking about. In Genesis 17, uh, the Lord introduces us circumcision, and it's important to appreciate what it means because so many people have misunderstood it to their eternal hurt. To this very day, people stumble over what it means and whether or not it's necessary to be circumcised or not, as though no conclusions came out of the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. But we read there that they did answer the question. And the answer to the question was an unequivocal no. It is not necessary to be circumcised after the manner of Moses to be saved. The question of whether or not you must be circumcised to be saved is a different question. The question of whether or not you've got to be circumcised is a different question, which would not be after the manner of Moses, just whether or not you need to be circumcised. And the answer to that question is... Yes and no, depending upon what you mean by circumcision. What circumcision are you talking about and who performs it? And as I mentioned, it has five different meanings throughout the scriptures. As the gospels went forth, as the gospel went forth throughout the book of Acts, we see that the Jews ever struggled with that question. They hold the council in Acts chapter 15, and yet even after the council, Paul was persecuted about this issue everywhere he went because he was preaching Christ and justification by faith. 
before the council was held in Acts 14, which our deacon went into this morning, uh, we read that the Jews stirred up the people and they stoned Paul. He had been preaching in Iconium, and then they stirred up the people to stone him, so he flees to Lystra and Derbe, and it's in Lystra where they stone him, thinking, and leave him for dead, and then he, of course, gets up and he goes back and he preaches. And um, the Lord teaches us about this in Galatians 5.11, where Paul is affirming that he preached salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He says there, If I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. Preaching the cross of Christ is an offense to man. It debases the righteousness of men, for of a truth, our righteousnesses are nothing but filthy rags. So in 2 Corinthians 11, he starts to articulate the things that he has suffered. He says, of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. In the next verse, he talks about him being stoned, making reference back to Acts 14. And so the intent was to kill Paul. I mean, it was one thing to dog him and try to have him arrested, another thing to um, beat him with 40 stripes, save one, and another thing altogether to uh, stone him, to pick up stones to stone him. They were trying to kill him as they had done Stephen in Acts chapter 7. So even after he completes his third missionary journey and comes back to Jerusalem, he is still questioned about the issue of circumcision. When he gets to Jerusalem, and this is in Acts chapter 21, it says, James and all the elders are present, and they discuss the issue of circumcision with them about what's going on with respect to the law of Moses. What are you preaching? Um, And so that causes some trouble for him, as you know. It's when he goes into the temple there at their suggestion that he's arrested, and then eventually he ends up in Rome. Some people cannot let this issue of circumcision go and firmly believe that it is a necessary part of the covenant for the Jews in particular. We should appreciate that it is an important issue because though it is a small thing, it is one small step down the road of self-justification. Justification based on works and places you back under the book of the law which will condemn you. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You want to introduce circumcision? You place yourself back under the entire law and therefore the curse. Now, respecting grace and works, we should appreciate the Scripture ever delineates between the two, making it crystal clear that we are saved by grace through faith, and that faith is not of our own. It is a gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says that very clearly. It says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith is the gift you're given, and the gift is an act of grace of God. Not works, lest any man should boast. In Romans chapter 11, verse 6, in Romans 11, verse 6, the Lord says, And if by grace, then is it no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. It is ever one or the other, and never a mixture of both. 
God's grace and your works don't work. Genesis chapter 16, throughout the course of history, has proven it. Abraham and Sarah would be grace. Abraham and Hagar would be works. And there has been 4,000 years of trouble ever since they uh, did that, ever since they thought they would give uh, God help in terms of bringing forth the child of promise. It did not bring forth the child of promise. It brought forth nothing but trouble. So which dispensation are you under? Are you under the dispensation of grace or works? To be under the dispensation of works means that you're under the law. Scripture tells us that the law is, quote, a ministration of death. It is the ministration of condemnation. You'll find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 and 9. It is a ministration of death and the ministration of condemnation. Scripture tells us that it is by the law that we have the knowledge of sin. A man under the law, a man under it, subject to it, is condemned by it. They cannot be saved by it nor through it, only out of it or in spite of it, and that by grace alone. So given these simple truths, we should appreciate that a proper understanding of circumcision is very important respecting a proper understanding of justification. For, quote, by the deeds of the law, which again are the works of the flesh, shall no flesh be justified in his sight, in God's sight. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Romans chapter 4 teaches us, and this is another big picture thing, Romans chapter 4 teaches us that Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised in the context of Genesis chapter 17. So obviously that circumcision has nothing to do with it. And yet people think it did have something to do with it and it does have something to do with it. I'll read Romans chapter 4 verses 8 through 12. Romans 4, 8 through 12. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessed this then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned or imputed or accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision, not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign, pay attention to that word, sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet, being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. Big picture, he was justified before he was circumcised. And those verses there use several different meanings of the word circumcision. It refers to the physical act and it refers to two different people groups. Um, so the Bible teaches us that justification is by the faith of Christ only. Galatians 2.16 says that knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, which would include circumcision, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified 
by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So given the language of Scripture, it should be crystal clear that no works of man might contribute to their salvation, and yet men continue to stumble over this issue. People continue to believe that the covenant of circumcision means something to the Jews, that because they are Jews in the flesh, they are physically related to Abraham, that there is accorded to them a special dispensation by virtue of the act of circumcision of their flesh, the circumcision made with hands, and their genealogical relationship to Abraham. That because they've been circumcised and they're related to Abraham, they have a special dispensation unto them. Even though the scripture directly um, contradicts this. Scripture says that those who are born of God are not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's John chapter 1, verse 13. To them gave he power to be the sons of God, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So in spite of the clear language here, some believe that that statement excludes those people who were related by blood to Abraham and are circumcised. Those people apparently are born of God because they bear a genealogical relationship to Abraham and are circumcised. So apparently the very act of circumcision in the face of these truths makes God a debtor to man. That because they are circumcised, God, by virtue of the covenant articulated here in Genesis 17, is obligated to bring that man to glory if they are circumcised and related to Abraham by blood, even though that's not the condition set forth here in Genesis 17, which we'll touch upon in a moment. So given the instructions in Genesis 17, what does it mean in terms of justification? In terms of justification by your works, it means nothing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19, it says, Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God, which we know won't justify a man in God's sight, because of the weakness of the flesh, man cannot keep the commandments of God, and they therefore they must be kept for him. I want to say that again. Men cannot keep the commandments of God, therefore they have to be kept for him. Somebody else has got to do it. The law simply reveals the nature of man that he is a sinner. Again, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so scripture properly com, um, concludes that there is none righteous, no, not one. So again, given what's written here in Genesis 17, and what does it mean in terms of justification? It means nothing. So let's read the fine print. Go to Genesis 17:11. I tried to emphasize this word when I was reading it, and I did again in Romans chapter 4. In Genesis 17, 11, it says that the circumcision of the foreskin of the flesh of the man-child is a token of the covenant between God and Abraham. It is a sign of the covenant. It points to the covenant. 
Genesis 11, uh, excuse me, Genesis 17:11 uses the word token. In Romans 4:11, it uses the word sign. It is not the covenant. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, and Isaiah 49, verse 8. Those are good verses to look up. I'll say them again. Isaiah 42, 6, and Isaiah 49, 8. They both tell us that Christ is the covenant. Christ himself is the covenant. And so if Christ is the covenant, the token or sign of the covenant would point to Christ, which he accomplished when he went to the cross. That's when he was given as a covenant. So it's got to point to him. In and of itself, it means nothing spiritually. It is not the covenant. It is the token of the covenant. Consider what is set for us here. Big picture again, Genesis chapter 17. Notice that the women were not circumcised. Women are not circumcised. Are they excluded from the everlasting covenant because they are not circumcised? Are Abraham's, the women that are born of Abraham and, and Sarah, you know, um, their uh, progeny, are the women, are they excluded from the um, covenant because they're not circumcised? Obviously, that answer is, is false. They are, of course, they're not excluded. Christ came through the seed of a woman, and Scripture says that the woman shall be saved in childbearing. Women are part of the everlasting covenant. They are recipients of the everlasting covenant. Now, Ishmael was circumcised, and he was one of Abraham's son. Scripture tells us three times in Genesis 17, verses 23, 25, and 26, tells us three times that Ishmael was the son of Abraham. Was he included in the everlasting covenant because he was a son of Abraham and because he was circumcised? The answer is no. He was not included in the covenant. Galatians chapter 4, verse 30 says, What saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, which is Ishmael, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Well, heir of what? Heir of everlasting life. He has no part in the everlasting covenant. He is cast out with a bondwoman, even though he's a son of Abraham and he's circumcised. What about all those that are born in Abraham's house and bought with his money? Does the everlasting covenant apply to them? God told him to circumcise these people. So with respect to them, I don't know the answer to that because the answer would be some yes and some no. God knows that the everlasting covenant includes Jews and Gentiles, which we read about in Romans 4. It includes those that are bond-free. It includes men and women. It includes people that are circumcised in the flesh and people that are not circumcised in the flesh. It includes people that are out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Revelation 5, 9 teaches us that. So obviously circumcision, as it is set forth here in Genesis 17, which is referred to here as a token of the covenant, means nothing spiritually. The answer to all these questions really come out of the New Testament, but there are references to this also in the Old Testament, which we'll cover in a few minutes here. But what it points to judicially means everything. What it points to, what that token points to, means everything judicially. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 and 6, 1 through 6, the Lord tells us, I stand fast, therefore, excuse me, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and be not entangled again 
with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. If you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. In other words, if you seek justification through circumcision, ye are actually condemning yourself. Christ shall profit you nothing. Verse 3. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That comes out of Deuteronomy 27.26. There it says, Cursed be he, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. The Jews willfully put themselves under this covenant. Not a good idea. They were cursed because they failed to do everything that was under the works of the law. In verse 4 of Galatians chapter 5, he says, Christ is become of no effect to you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Now, remember a week or two we talked about that word fallen in the context of backsliding? Christians don't fall from faith. You fall from things that you do not, that you have not achieved or realized. If you're climbing a ladder to get on the roof of the house, to fall away would mean you didn't actually get up on the roof where you would be safe. You fell before you got there. So um, to fall from grace means you never apprehended grace, or I should say it never apprehended you. So they have fallen from that which they have never attained. They've placed themselves back under the law. Verse 5 of Galatians 5, For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ for in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. So that's what's alluded to here in Genesis 17, I should say. What is alluded? It speaks of the everlasting covenant. So it's speaking of something obviously different than simply what they were to do in the flesh. Um, it speaks of the covenant that God will establish. In verse 7 of Genesis 17, we read, And I, that would be God, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and thy seed after thee. Twice here, God uses the language that the Lord tells us in Galatians 3.16 points to Christ. Remember when we were talking about the covenant of the land, I said there's two different covenants. One's conditional, one's unconditional. The unconditional was made to Abraham and his seed, as opposed to the conditional one, which was just made to his seed. There's a subtle difference there, but the first one points to Christ. In Galatians 3.16, it says, Now to Abraham and his seed... Where the promise is made, he saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So clearly the covenant here in Genesis 17 is wrapped up in Christ. In verse 9 of Genesis 17, God again uses this language that points to Christ. He says there, And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore, thou and thy seed, after thee in their generations. We should take this as a promise. The covenant will be kept, and it will be kept by Christ. Notice in Genesis 17 here, in the first verse, the Lord says to him, um, 
I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Be perfect. And then down here he's telling him that he will keep the covenant. Why is it necessary for Abraham to keep a covenant and walk perfect before God if he has already been justified by God? Obviously, he's speaking about something else. These are promises. Be perfect. Yeah, you're perfect if you're in Christ and Christ is in you. You are complete. You are whole. You are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, which is God. The covenant will be kept, and it will be kept by Christ. So if circumcision here is a token of the covenant and we must be circumcised and will be circumcised, what is in view here? Well, the true objects of circumcision are our hearts and our sins. The true object is our hearts and our sins. In Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, speaks about this. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, it says, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So when sorting through the various promises in Scripture, it's important to understand that some promises are applied to the outward Jew, the one circumcised in the flesh, and some promises apply to the inward Jew, the one circumcised in the spirit, the circumcision of the heart. The everlasting covenant applies to the inward Jew, the one whose heart God circumcised, the one with whom God kept the covenant, which is to say that the circumcision is made without hands, meaning without our hands. The Old Testament actually makes reference to this circumcision. Romans chapter 2 is not the first place the idea or the truth is set before us. I'm going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 10. I'm actually going to read from four different places in the Old Testament because I want you to see that this idea of circumcision of the heart is not something new to the New Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 16, the Lord says, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of God and his statutes, which I have commanded thee this day for thy good. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God's, the earth also with all that therein is. Only the Lord hath a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as is this day. Verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. So he's telling them that they are not walking in his ways, that they are not obedient unto him, and they do not love him. Therefore, they need to circumcise their hearts. Now, again, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Deuteronomy 30, uh, verses 1 through 6, he says, And it shall come to pass... When all these things are come upon thee, the blessings and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind amongst all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shall return unto the Lord thy God, and shall obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thine soul. Nobody can do that unless they're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Verse 3 that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all nations whither the Lord thy God has scattered thee. 
If any of thine be driven out unto the uttermost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it. And he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. Verse 6, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thine soul, and that thou mayest live it. Absent a circumcised heart, man cannot and will not love God. God has to replace his heart, take out that stony heart, and put in a heart of flesh. There's a promise here in verse 6 that the Lord God will circumcise the hearts. First he told them to do it, then he said that he would do it. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, Jeremiah 4, 1 through 4, we read, If thou wilt return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me, and if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of my sight, then shalt thou not remove. And thou shalt swear, the Lord liveth in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness, and the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glorify. For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not amongst thorns. Verse 4, Circumcise yourselves in the Lord, and take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like a fire, and burn that none can quench it, because of the evil of your doings. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will punish all them which are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Egypt and Judah and Edom and the children of Amnon and Moab and all that are in the uttermost corners that dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. So he's telling us here in both of these sections of Jeremiah that though they're circumcised in the flesh, Judah, the house of Israel here in context, is uncircumcised in heart and therefore not inwardly Jewish. Obviously, the external covenant does not apply to them in terms of everlasting life. Otherwise, they would have been circumcised in the heart, the circumcision made without hands. The second thing that applies to the inward Jew respecting circumcision, which is related to the circumcision of the heart, is the removal of our sins, the putting off of the sins of the flesh. That comes from Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In Colossians 2, 11, it says, In whom also, meaning in Christ, are ye, are also ye are the circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Christ was circumcised when he went to the cross. We are in Christ, so we were circumcised when Christ was circumcised. So in the context, the circumcision of Christ is when he went to the cross, when he was cut off from the land of the living. Isaiah 53, 8 makes reference to this. In Isaiah 53, 8, it says, He was taken from prison, and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people was he stricken. He was cut off from the land of the living because of our sins. They were imputed to him, and we were in him. And so when he was cut off, when he was circumcised, we were circumcised. The sins of the inward Jew were imputed to Christ and cut off, circumcised from us when he went to the cross and died. 
in both of these cases with respect to the heart and putting off of the sins, we appreciate that it was God alone who performed this spiritual operation. We simply receive the benefits of it by faith. Which is why when we read Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8, that it's all about what God will do in establishing his covenant, which he says we will keep in verse 9. And this we do because Christ kept it for us when we were in him and when he went to the cross. Again, Colossians 2, 10 and 11 says, And ye are complete in him, Remember in verse 1, he told Abraham to be perfect and walk before him. We are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So here we have in Genesis 17, God setting before us the cross of Christ, which I confess can only be appreciated in the greater light that Scripture gives to us. Um, where we can read about what the everlasting covenant is all about and that it is in fact rooted in the cross of Christ whom he gave for a covenant. The people it applies to includes some people that were circumcised in the flesh and some people that were not circumcised in the flesh, but only those people and all of those people that were circumcised by the circumcision of Christ when he was cut off from the land of the living due our sins, in whom we place our complete faith and trust. So as the Lord warns us in the book of Galatians, don't ever let anyone beguile you with the notion that there is but one small thing that we have to do to affect or assist in our salvation. To do that is to put you under the law and its curse. Christ by himself has accomplished everything that is required by God to affect and affect our salvation. He is our salvation. So let us do as the uh, saints did up in Antioch when the disciples returned from the council at Jerusalem and let us rejoice uh, in great consolation that Christ has accomplished everything that is required and we are not subject to the law or any of its provisions. To which I say, Amen.